Chase talked about near-death experiences. He said two and three days, his cousin and then one of his friends on the team. <clears throat> How many of you guys have been in a near-death experience before? You don't have to raise your hands, but uh, okay. <laughs> Some of you are more than willing to. Do you want to tell us about it? Uh, how many of you been there? And I, I mean, not just, uh, I mean, not just going on the slingshot fair ride or your first ride on a plane or um, those kinds of things. But I mean, you said your last words, you wrote your will, and you thought this is it. Anybody ever been there? I bet a lot of you have, and I bet even if you haven't been there, you've been with somebody that has before. That's quite the feeling, isn't it? You're thinking, man, this might be it. Or this very, very well may be it. Um, I know I've had some experiences like that, and I've just thought, am I ready to go? What's the state of my soul when I'm in those circumstances? Can I say it is well, it is well with my soul? A lot of you guys know the story that goes with that song, but uh, the gentleman that wrote it had lost three of his children by the time he'd written that, and uh, only his wife and one of his kids had survived, and he, <clears throat> he penned that song and in the midst of all that tragedy. In the midst of fear, in the midst of all those things, it was well with his soul. So as we continue to walk through the Gospels and follow the life of Christ fairly chronologically, I wonder if it was well with the disciples' souls. And that's what we're going to ask tonight. And uh, I think we'll find out that it really wasn't. But I hope that we can learn a lot from uh, the disciples' fear, from their lack of faith, from their fear in the time that they thought they were going to die. Uh I came across a quote this week. It said, let's say, it said, I want to die in my sleep like my grandpa, not screaming like his passenger. And I <laughs> think about it. And I, <laughs> I wonder if that's how the disciples were feeling a little bit. Um, I think you'll know what you mean. So grab your Bibles and uh, open to them, to the eighth chapter of Luke. I think we'll see it's not an exact parallel, but maybe we can get some mind into the disciples. Um, Most of you are familiar with this story, but let's unpack it. Go to chapter 8 of Luke, starting in verse 22, and follow along with me as I read. It says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, Let us grow across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the winds and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. So let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes tonight and think about that passage. I know that there's lots of com- competing thoughts in your mind and in your life right now. It's a it's a difficult time in the semester, and so uh, as we reflect on that passage, let's go to prayer for just a minute and ask the Lord to focus your mind in. Ask Him to be able to help you to see and to know and understand deeply what it looks like to have faith in Christ tonight. What can we learn from this tonight? So let's pray. I'll give you just a minute to focus your mind and your heart. Get any competing thoughts or ideas or things out of your mind as we do that.
Lord, many thoughts and things, even good things in our minds and on our plates and in our lives. Lord, we don't want to set them away or put them somewhere else, but we do want to set them before you and especially our sin, Father. I pray that you might draw out any sin that's in our life tonight through your word that you'd convict us and, and lead us out of sin, Lord, especially in regards to lack of faith and help us to learn well tonight. Help us to learn from the disciples and as we think about lives, our lives, Lord, and how short they are and, and life-threatening circumstances. Father, I confess that I need your help greatly now as I teach and I pray that you'd be you'd be pleased to use this, Father. It would not be in word only, but in power and demonstration of the Spirit. Father, may we leave here, may I leave here, may we all leave here more like Christ than when we came. Help us to worship you tonight, Lord. We ask this in the precious name of your Son, who we'll learn about tonight. Amen. Amen. So stay with me there in your Bibles. And... Uh, if you haven't been here before, again, we've been tracking Christ through his life and his ministry, and, and we looked at a lot of his early life, but now Christ is spending a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a central hub in, in the land, and lots of things are happening there. And We pick up Jesus uh, just after he's told the parable of the soils. You guys all remember that? He's told the parable of the soils and planting the seeds on the different soils, and then it says... Uh, in Luke, that he's just eating a nearby meal in Capernaum. And as typical of Jesus' ministry, he's swarmed by people right now. And he's just had dinner, and it's probably fairly late into the night even. Uh, Luke is pretty obscure. He says now on one of those days, he doesn't really care if we know, but the other gospel uh, writers let us into the passage a little bit more, and they see and tell us that it's on into night now. And he's swarmed by people, and it's time that he wants to get away. And so he says to them, uh, he says to them, let us go to the other side of the lake, or the sea, the Sea of Galilee. In those times they called everything a sea, even if it was a little bigger than a puddle. But the Sea of Galilee is not a sea, it's actually a lake. And Jesus gets in it, and he goes out with his disciples. So that's where we pick him up. Now, if you could put those pictures up on there for me, Kyle. Um, I want you guys to see what was kind of going on. This is a model or a replica of a boat that they would have been in uh, really a first century boat that they would have rowed in, fished in, those kinds of things. So uh, just so you can see, good. And then this is actual uh, something they've uncovered that they've dated to first century B.C. And uh, and it took them days and days and days to uncover this thing, but pretty darn cool. And uh, you can see how close it is. Back that up again. You can see how close it is to the real one um, or to the to the replica one. But so you guys can see the kind of boat that they were riding in. And then go ahead and go on to the next one. This is the Sea of Galilee. This isn't a great picture, but this gives you an idea of what we're looking at. I want, your, I want you to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes as we walk with Christ, as we go and as we, as we escape from the crowds and as we push out into the sea. Is there one more there, Kyle? Should be good. This is a panorama, not great, but you can see uh, the Sea of Galilee shaped like a pear. Kind of, and I think this is the base of it. And so you can get an idea of what they were pushing out in. So put yourself in the place, put yourself in the time as we push out from the sea. Mark says that there were other boats that went out with them. So Jesus wasn't alone. Uh, he wasn't just with his 12 disciples, but there was a lot of t- 
disciples that were following along. Some of them believers, some of them not believers. But they came along, uh, they were interested, and they hopped in their boats and they came with them. And then verse 23 says, But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And it says, And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and be in danger. So we press out from the lake, we cast off from the shore to get away from the people. It's now late into night, and Jesus is flat exhausted. Just exhausted. He spent, we see a great picture of Christ's humanity here, don't we? It's so easy for us to get caught up in um, just defending Christ's deity. And that's important because that's often what's most under attack in our day. But we need to see that Christ was fully man. He was subject to the things that you and I are subject to. Uh, hunger and thirst and uh, emotions, although not sinful ones. He was tired, things like that. He was subject to the very limitations that we were. And so Christ is exhausted. Interestingly, this is the only place where we see Christ asleep in the scriptures. He press out from the shore, and what's Christ do? He needs a break. And so it says he climbed up to the stern of the boat, and he went to sleep. He can't hardly stay awake anymore. He's been working for days, and he's been busy, and there's been people vying for his attention, and uh, he's just spent. And you can imagine why. In fact, Perhaps at that time of year over there, it's 100 degrees, 100 plus degrees, 100 degrees, or 100% humility, scorching heat. Sort of a tireless ministry that Christ was running, wasn't it? It was only three years, but it was a tireless ministry. Uh, have any of you ever spent a day working with people? I mean, just in intense conversations? You know how taxing this can be, don't you? And I don't mean to disregard manual labor. I grew up... Uh, on the country in a ranch and I really enjoy manual labor and at the end of the day I love feeling like I've been able to do something with my hands and work that day but have you ever just been in conversations all day just meeting or working with people if you have you know exactly what I mean you just drained in fact I remember the first time I, I realized this was when I went to Australia for a summer and I was on uh, campuses talking to college students and really anybody that would listen about Christ and I was only on it for maybe four, five, maybe six hours a day, but I would get back and I would just be spent. Just exhausted, intellectually exhausted, mentally exhausted, just famished. Even it had taken toll on its body. I'd, I remember coming home and just plopping down on the couch. If you've even been in a two-hour conversation, you know what I mean, where you're really plugged in, not fiddling around with your cell phone or the pencil on the table, but really focused in on someone's conversation. This is how Christ's days were. This is how his time was. So he crawls into the boat, he crawls up on the stern, and Mark says he uses a pad for a pillow. And he goes up by the stern and he proceeds not to just doze off, not to just fall asleep and take a little nap, but to go in one of those comatose stages of sleep. Anybody you ever been there? Maybe some of you sleep like this all the time. I know I don't. I'm a light sleeper. I can hear something and wake up like that. But that's not the kind of sleep that he was in. He was out. He was exhausted, could not keep his eyes open any longer. Have you ever been this kind of tired? I really kind of doubt it. I know you guys are tired after a long week, and sometimes you feel exhausted, but this isn't the kind of tired that you get after staying up too late the night before. I want you to see and understand the state that Christ was in. He was exhausted. He climbs into the stern of the boat, and he falls asleep. Remember I went to a camp one time. It was a, a camp down in Colorado. It was for college athletes and it was a Christian camp and we went down there and it was three really intense days. I think it was one, two, three. And then on the third day we did something called the special. 
I mean, know what it was. We went down there kind of blind. But uh, what it ended up being was like 16 hours of intense physical competition in every different kind of sport that you could imagine. And we were playing volleyball, and they were like in our face, yelling at us, screaming. I mean, volleyball was intense. And fall f- frisbee was intense and everything. And I remember cramping up and just exhausted, tired from them squeezing uh, mustard in my mouth and washing it down with pickle juice. I was cramping up. I couldn't walk. My muscles wouldn't work. People were, uh, gal had to go to the hospital. I remember sitting there shivering under the covers because she couldn't get warm. It was weird. They shouldn't let people do that kind of thing. But uh, the reason I bring that up is because that's the most tired I think I've ever been in my life. We went until about 2 in the morning competition. We did a mental exam for an hour. And then we took a nap, about a two-hour nap, two, maybe three hours. And they got us out of bed again. And we did an obstacle course, and we competed till something like 2 in the next day. And uh last thing we did was we ran down a hill and then ran back up with a big 2 by 4 And, I mean, people were crying, and it was, <laughs> it was a sorry thing. But they exhausted, that kind of tired, that kind of... Uh, I know some of you guys have been in the military. There's a, a book called uh, SEAL Team 6, and in the book it talks about uh, a week that they have of training. And by Since Sunday night to Thursday afternoon, they'd have had a total of three to four hours of sleep. They're starting to hallucinate. They're starting to see things that, they, uh, that aren't really real. Their bodies are extinguished. They're exhausted. They're sputtering. They can barely move. And finally, they let them go to sleep. And they crawl into their beds and they have to have someone monitoring them so they don't drown in their spit, choke on their tongue, or just stop breathing completely. That's how tired they are. I don't know what Christ, what kind of circumstance or or thing that he was at, but it says that a fierce storm rose up on the water. And here's Christ sleeping on the stern. I bet he was pretty darn tired, famished. He picked a good time to sleep. He just wanted to go over to the other shore. And uh, so he falls asleep. He dozes off. Keep in mind, this wasn't the uh, disciples' first rodeo on the water, was it? Think of Peter. They'd called him out of fishing. Christ had called him out of his fishing business. And uh, he'd probably been on the lake since he was about 10. Again, this is a central lake. Uh, People are always around this lake, the Lake of the Sea of Galilee. And they're fishing. And Peter was a big-time fisherman. And so were uh, Andrew, his brother. It says in Matthew 4.18, walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into a sea, for they were fishermen. These guys were this by trade. They'd probably been out in their boat thousands and thousands of times. Uh, the only time they didn't work was on the Sabbath day. And so this is what they did, and they did it well. This was just another routine thing to cast out from shore. You ever watch someone uh, who's really good at a particular trade that they can do? Something that you can't do at all. I'm not just talking about like a good basketball player. I'm talking about someone who does something that you can't even begin to understand. That's how these guys were with boats and fishing. Peter was a master fisherman. In fact, that's what they went back to. That's what they were comfortable with. That's what they returned to for a while after Christ uh, was crucified. I want you to understand the, the Sea of Galilee. Um, the lake has an area of about 64 square miles, and it's 702 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the face of the earth. 
uh, in the second lowest lake after the Dead Sea. It's 700 feet below sea level. The lake is far, fed partly by underground springs and then some by the Jordan River. That comes out to about, uh, well, to give you an idea, MSU campus is 1,170 acres. You've all been down there. You know about how big that is. The Sea of Galilee is about 35 times that large. It's about 40,000 acres. It's about 10 times the size of Holter Lake, if you've been on Holter Lake. And uh, these guys are in a 35-foot wooden boat. It just so happens that the Sea of Galilee lends itself to this kind of storm. There's highlands all around the Sea of Galilee, and cold air will come rushing off those highlands and swoop down and mix with the warm air on the Sea of Galilee. And that'll cause a stir. And there's also deep uh, valleys that run into the sea. And the water or the air will run down those valleys and become compressed and compress. And by the time it hits the lake, there's a crazy storm that happens. And it still goes on today. So again, picture with me. You're in a 35-foot boat. You're pressed off from the sea or from the shore. You're with Jesus. He's asleep. And you're a master fisherman. And you're in a 35-foot boat. But this is a storm like you've never seen before. And it says your boat's starting to fill up with water. And Jesus is still sleeping. The disciples put out with great faith and probably little concern from the shore. Their faith had no test undergo. They were just crossing to the other side. But the faith that was cast out in normal circumstances was soon going to be tested in the abnormal. Their trust or lack thereof was soon to be put to the test. In fact, in verse 24 it says, They came to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Here's these big, tough fishermen, and they run to Christ, and they say, we've had it. We're done. We're over. We're perishing. We're going to die. The boat's filling up with water. Matthew records him calling them Lord. Uh, Luke says master, and Mark says teacher. Understand that the disciples didn't uh, finally get done, and they didn't go over to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, uh, do you mind helping out? They came to him in a mob, and they said, master, master, Lord, Teacher, do something. We're perishing. We're going to die. And they even got frustrated. In fact, Mark says, uh, they said to him, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not even care that we're going to die? Jesus stands up and he says to the sea, hush, be still. Second part of verse 24, he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. Hush. Be still, Jesus says, and at once the whole thing was still. It wasn't even just that the storm stopped, but that the waves calmed instantly. Now again, because the geography, geography, terrain, those kinds of things, storms stop just as soon as they start, but this wasn't any normal stop. It was like someone took a big bed sheet and spread it out straight, and all of a sudden the waves stop and the place was still. There was a sea of glass. This wasn't the first miracle that the disciples had seen, but it was the first one that saved their lives. It was the first one that had affected them so intimately. Certainly some of these men knew the Old Testament well, and you've got to wonder if passages leapt to their mind. I'll read you one out of Psalm 89, uh, 6 through 9. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above those who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, with your faithfulness around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. 
disciples realized that only the God of the universe, only the king, had power over nature like this. The faith that they'd been given was given an occasion to be tested. The storms had come, and they'd rightly called out to God, but they'd done it in much doubt. So it says, Jesus said to them, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? The result's not surprising. In fact, imagine again if you're there and you just think your life's about over, like some of you guys who raised your hand early, put yourself in that circumstance, and all of a sudden it's deadly calm. And all of a sudden your fear's redirected from what's outside the boat about to kill you. And now there's a mighty fear and an awestruck reverence for what is in the boat with you. They take their gaze off the storm and all of a sudden they place it on Christ and they say, Who is this? We knew this man was great. We knew maybe even that he was a prophet. But who does this sort of thing? What manner of man is this? Who has this kind of power? It's little wonder a few chapters later in Mark 17, the apostles asked him, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, help us to believe more. Christ had said, where is your faith? Your faith lacks. Why do you doubt? And they sat back and they, they direct their fear from the storm and now they place their awestruck reverence on Christ. Who is this man? You know, partially why I'm skeptical when people always say, I had an encounter with the Lord the other day or uh, God spoke to me and said this, or I saw Christ in a dream, is because, well, the disciples' reaction here isn't atypical for Scripture. We see this kind of thing again and again. When people have an encounter with the living God, they're changed. They're struck. They come under conviction. From Genesis to Revelation, we see this again and again. Let me read some of these to you. Abraham in uh, Genesis 18.27 says, He answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Job 42 verses 5 and 6, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now I see thee, therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. Job has come And he's had an encounter with the living God. And all he can do is sit in dust and ashes and repent. After Daniel beheld the Lord in uh, Daniel 10 verses 8 through 9, it says, No strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to deadly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his word. As soon as I heard the words, fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Ezekiel one twenty eight, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, that when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. The examples can be multiplied again and again and again and again. This is not an uncommon theme in Scripture. Luke 5.8, but when Simon Peter saw it, that is, when Simon Peter saw him bring in all the fish with his catch, get this, He hid his knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You all familiar with when uh, Saul met the Lord in Acts 9, he fell down and could not see, and the people around him stood speechless. They couldn't see what he was seeing, but they were speechless. 
Matthew 14, 29 through 33, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, you have little faith. <clears throat> this is when the disciples walking on the sea and he said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat and the wind died down, those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. There's no proper response to anything when we come encounter with the living God, but to fall down and worship. The disciples have no choice here. They go, what manner of man is this? Who is in this boat? Finally, Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, this is John speaking, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last. The only proper response is reverence. The only proper response when we come encounter, when we see this in scripture, is falling before his feet and worship him. The majesty of God, I'll submit to you, is an is a idea that is lost from from popular Christianity. This idea that we worship the king of the universe and an encounter with the living God forever changes men. I'm talking about the realization that who we speak to, who we pray to, who we talk about tonight, who we read about in scriptures is the king of the universe. And he spoke the world into creation. Do you think it was anything for him to calm a storm? Not hardly. He spoke those very same waters into existence and they must obey him. The disciples were intimately acquainted with this man and they were still taken at him saying, what kind of man is this? I want you to understand they, had, they were lost. When's the last time you were lost with who you worship? When's the last time you were lost? Not in the moment, not in, uh, not in yourself, not in your schoolwork, but you were lost in the majesty of the Lord of heaven whom you worship. I'm going to read to you from some passages and psalms that Jesus fulfilled. Psalms 29, 1 through 4. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Psalms 93, 1 through 4. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength in his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Psalms 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wonders in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the seas. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Psalm 65. By awesome deeds your answer, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth, the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, listen to this, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the people. 
So often I hear folks say, if I could just see Jesus do that, if I could just see Jesus calm the storm, if he would just heal me of this disease, if he would just do that, I would believe. Friends, if you say that or if you think that, you miss the point. And make no mistake, I've said that myself. But Jesus gives us a parable a lot like that. You might recall it. It's in uh, Luke 16, verse 19 through 30. It's of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is a a poor man and he's got wounds and he's despised of men. The dogs come up and lick his wounds and talks about the rich man who's clothed in purple and splendor and they both die and one goes to Hades and the other goes to what they call Abraham's bosom or heaven and and, uh, the rich man looks up from Hades. Somehow the great gulf is cleared up for a moment and he He cries out and he says to the man, he says to Lazarus on Abraham's bosom, he says, give me a drop of water. All he wants is a drop of water to calm his scorching tongue. He says, no. He says, well, then at least go and tell my brothers, my family, go tell them of what is to come. Tell them so they won't encounter this. And you know the story. Lazarus says, even if uh, if an angel from heaven or even if... Even if someone was to come and tell them from heaven, they would not believe. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, if they won't believe the word of God, even if they see these things, they won't believe. Friends, if this is not enough tonight, nothing's enough. Does Christ do miracles? Yes, he does. Should your faith be grounded in hoping on those miracles for your life? No. If they will not believe from the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, they will not believe. I'll tell you something else, though. He's done a greater miracle than stilling the storm. He's made something, he, he hasn't just made something that was alive and rowdy and, and uh, the waters, they were stormy. He hasn't just made something that was alive, calm down and, and be still. He's made something that was stone dead come alive and live and speak and breathe. I'm talking about you if you're born again. It's a far greater miracle for God to take a dead man or woman and make them live. Because trust me, that's all we were before Christ. Ezekiel 37 says, dead man's bones. And if you're born again, God made you alive and that is a miracle. And if you're not born again, look around. There's some people here who've had a miracle in their life and they'd be more than happy to testify about it to you. Jeremiah 10:13. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he uttered his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes the lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from the storehouses. Listen, friends, the storms are going to come. They're going to come. The tests are going to come. Chances are they already have. Storms come for different reasons. In the case of Jonah, it was a great discipline. In the case of the disciples, it was a testing and enduring and a building of their faith. I'm not saying you're going to jump on a boat and go out in the waters, but Christ gives us this lesson so we can learn. Think about how this applies to you. You will go through trials. You will go through storms. And will you turn to Christ first or will you turn to him last when there's nothing else to do? Never forget the story of my friend uh, got his pickup stuck in a great snowbank. (laughs) He's out uh, 
doing what teenagers do, driving their pickups and seeing how uh, manly they can be and how far they can get them stuck and those kinds of things. And they got stuck good. And they dug and they dug and they dug and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they could not get it out. And finally they came to the conclusion that they were going to have to spend the night in the pickup and wait till morning and hike out. They stopped and they prayed and they took a minute and they said, Lord, we got no other options. Uh, Would you just just do something here? And uh, they gave her one more shove and out she came. (laughs) What happened? They get stuck and turn to the Lord. Do you get stuck in your life and turn to the Lord after you try everything else or do you go to the Lord when you're stuck and say, Father, I'm helpless. I know I'm helpless. I don't have to try everything else to know I'm helpless. I'm helpless. Lord, I'm perishing. Help me. Lord, I'm perishing. Help me. He doesn't put storms. He doesn't put trials. He doesn't put things in our life because he hates us. He puts things in our life because he loves us for his great love for us so he can sanctify us and call us and cleanse us. It's at times like these, 1 Peter 5, 7 applies. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What kind of man is this? Disciples would soon come to understand fully what kind of man he was. This is indeed the king of the universe, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's Lord of all, and it's no big thing for him to calm a storm. He awakens women and men from dead, from the depths of their sin, and brings them and gives them new life. What a beautiful, beautiful miracle. Is that a reality in your life? Close with this, 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He is Lord of all. Is He your Lord tonight? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mighty deeds. We thank You for the testimony of Your disciples, the twelve apostles as they were on earth and they were frightened, Lord, and cried out in the great storm. And We thank You for their example. Lord, help us to come to You first and not last. Thank you for trials. Thank you for tragedies. Thank you for your word which instructs us in these things. God, I pray that you'd restore the majesty of yourself into our mind, into our life. Lord, thank you that uh, thank you that you can take away doubt. Thank you that you can heal our minds when we doubt and when we try everything else before we turn to you. Thank you that we can cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. Thank you that you are king of the universe. Thank you that you are Lord over all. Thank you for doing a miracle in my life. Father, if there's some here that you haven't done a miracle in, I pray that you'd do it, Lord, that you'd be pleased to call them to repentance. Call them to repentance, Lord. And for those that are in you, that have been born again here tonight, Lord, would you build them up in the faith? Would you sanctify us again, Lord, I ask that we would leave here more like Christ than when we came. Lord, help us to love well. Help us to be patient. Help us to be confident, Lord. We sure do love you. And we're awful grateful to be called your children. To be called your kin. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' precious and perfect name.